This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 38 for August 2013. Your hosts are Ken Morfield, that's me, and since Todd is on vacation, filling in is Peter Waldron. And that's me. Uh, Peter, you want to say a little bit about who you are or why you're here? <laughs> well, I'm a friend of Ken's who loves movies and loves talking about movies. And uh, with his stalwart partner on the road, I'm going to sit in and do my best to fill in. Okay, our topic for this episode is John Ford's The Searchers, the 1956 film starring John Wayne. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you've never seen The Searchers, what's wrong with you? But we will be discussing plot points throughout the film, so if you haven't seen it, this may be an excellent time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. Peter, I think that's maybe a good segue for some general impressions. I say rather tongue-in-cheek that just about everyone has seen The Searchers. I'm assuming this was not your first viewing. No, I had seen it, but many, many years ago, just, you know, on television, somewhere along the way. So when it's new, sometimes we'll start with summary. When it's a revisit, I like to start with, was the film as you remembered it? Or was there anything significantly new or different than um, than what you remembered or what has gotten into your consciousness from the film being in the public sphere? Right. Well, the the first thing was watching it on the on the Blu-ray disc. It was much more beautiful than I remember seeing it just, you know, on whatever cut they had years ago on the television. I, I thought that too, you know, that that's strange that we both thought that. John Ford is not normally one that you think of as being this visual director, but it's a gorgeous film. Yeah, all of the desert shots. And even more than some of that, there's the, the one particular scene that really struck me uh, was there's the dance before the, the wedding that goes wrong and the whole the whole setup and framework and shots of that dance I thought was just really, really impressive. I don't know if you looked at any of the extras on the Blu-ray disc, no, but there was one appreciation with uh, Curtis Hansen and John Milius and one other guy whom, whom I forget. Uh, but they were mentioning that uh, John Ford doesn't do, oh, Martin Scorsese, of course, um, who's a huge John Ford fan, but um, they were mentioning, I think it was Scorsese, that John Ford doesn't do a lot of close-ups. Yeah. And so if you're inundated by modern films of uh, a lot of close-ups to draw your attention, that the, the the type of filming he does, when there is a close-up, it's very striking, but that he he does a lot of the medium shots and has some choreographed action, and right. yet that still feels very emotionally raw and emotionally intimate without yeah. sticking the camera right in, face. into a number of people's faces. Any other any differences or uh, surprises that stuck out from you know the story aspects other than the formal? No, I don't 
think particularly, uh, I was struck probably again, I don't remember my initial reaction, but, you know, the, the main Comanche character, Scar, as is typical for the time period, it's just, you know, a white guy with a, with a wig on. And, you know, for such a great movie, that's kind of puts you out when you first see Scar. Like, oh yeah, this is how they used to do the Indians in the 1950s. Yeah. It's a white guy with a wig on. Right. Well, there was, um, in one of the extras, they had some TV shows from the 1950s that was promoting the film. Uh, interviews with Natalie Wood and whatnot, and they had a whole little segment about, um, it was actually many of the extras were a different, a different, uh, Indian tribe. Right. Like, well, they still do tribes, like the Navajos <laughs> or something like that. Right. So I thought that was, that was a little strange. Uh, all right. Well, let's jump into some themes for the film. Mm-hmm. We normally talk about religion and faith and spirituality. Race and racism is not, strictly speaking, a religious topic, although there seems to be an intersection of those things, uh, particularly in this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, In one of the scenes, as um, the posse is tracking the Native American party, they find a buried Native American and buried Comanche, uh, and Ethan, in a fit of anger, uh, shoots the eyes out on the command right. Ward Bond, who plays Reverend Captain Samuel Johnston Clayton, says, what good did that do? Uh, what did you do that for? And Ethan says, or what difference does that make? And Ethan says, according to what you preach, nothing. According to what he believes, pointing at the Comanche, he now has to wander around in the afterlife with, right. without any Stands, eyes. Yeah. I'm wondering what you make of that exchange in, in a general way, and maybe specifically if that tells us anything about what Ethan believes. Ethan very carefully juxtaposes or contrasts what the Reverend preaches with what the Comanches believe, but he doesn't align himself with either side. Right. Well, it's kind of perplexing because, you know, if he doesn't believe it, then why do it? The Indian's already dead. He's not going to think, oh, my eyes are shot out and now I'm, you know, damned. Uh, so it's perplexing. And it just, it just kind of, for me, went along with the whole uh, racism of, of Ethan's character and the hatred that he has for all these people or even somebody tainted with whatever one ace Comanche as the, the adopted son of his brother is. So I just saw it more as not anything about what he particularly believed, but just this act of, of pure spite that comes out of his racism. Okay, yeah. Um, well, I think that would be possibly consistent with... Um, it's implied, you don't actually see it at the end, that Ethan scalps Scar when right. they go to the well, I think you do see it, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I think you see him leaning over yeah, him, yeah. and I mean, obviously, the movie today you would right. probably actually <laughs> see it. <laughs> right. um, uh, but I, I think at the time it's pretty clear. It's pretty so, clear. yeah. It, I suppose one might take from the scalping that he, that again can be pure spite, or but it seems odd that Ethan consistently practices the Native American rituals or something like well, that. Well, again, there's the, there's that uh, brief scene where 
who kind of flips out and he just starts slaughtering the, the buffalo. Uh, just again, you know, well, this is, you know, one buffalo they don't get to eat this winter. Right. Uh, the, 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 well, I'm, I'm thinking about ritual particularly, you know, in terms of going through rituals, because in another scene that deals with religion, when the reverend is going to deputize everyone, mm-hmm. uh, he goes to deputize and have them, you know, swear so that they can uh, be legal. Right. And uh, Ethan refuses to be deputized. Right. Um, and he says, I figure a man's only good for one oath at a time. I took mine to the Confederate States of America. So I was going to ask you what you thought in general about the uh, about that line, if that has any meaning in terms of participating in the Native American rituals like the scalping or, or I shouldn't even say participating in them, but but invoking them and is a little bit different than a kind of refusal to participate in some of the rituals of the white culture, like refusing to take the the oath. Do you think that his reason for not doing that is that he's sworn an oath to the Confederate States and a man's only good for one oath at a time? Or is that just something he says that I think only, Partially. I mean, I think he still kind of considers himself, you know, part of the Confederacy. He, he tells somebody he refused to go to the surrender because, you know, he doesn't believe in surrender. And uh, there's the mystery of where he's been for three years after the war has ended. And you get the idea he's pretty much been up to no good. You know, he's got this gold, this mysterious pile of gold. And, uh, but... I think it's only partly uh, an idea of being loyal to something, and it's more tied into his complete set-apartness from everything. It's almost self-imposed independence. You know, he wants to do everything on his own. He doesn't want to be tied down to anybody. And, you know, I I don't think he takes any kind of oath seriously, really. Mm. He just wants everything to be his way and be alone on his own. Well, that's that's interesting The I'm thinking about uh, the Christian theologian John Stott once. He said once that the idea of a lone ranger Christian is make as much sense to him as a, quote, holy adulterer, that those two terms were just incompatible and that it's impossible to be totally set apart and independent and still be a Christian, that part of being a member of any religion is being a part of a greater community. Well, he is a part, and he's certainly not a good person. You know, he, 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 he's done all of these things, and he's obviously clearly you know, strongly racist. And so I think Ford goes out of his way to point out his separateness from community. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the famous shot at the end where he's standing there alone, uh, cut off from the happy family. Scene. Right. And, and he doesn't cross the threshold. He doesn't cross he doesn't, the threshold. He starts to go and even, even when he first shows up at the beginning, you know, it's clear that he's not really part of this family anymore, if he ever was. You know, there's always a distance there. And I think there's a lot in the movie, both in the framing of the shots and and the, in the dialogue, that makes it clear that he doesn't belong to a community. He, he can't fit into a community. That very last shot reminded me, in an, it, in a weird sort of way of the very last shot of The Godfather, yeah, which is door about a door closing and uh, 
two family members being on opposite sides of the door, uh, separated by their experience, you know, experience. The difference being that uh, Kay is surprised to find the door shut in her face, whereas he knows that that's always going to happen. Well, and and also I think Kay has the door shut in her face, whereas Ethan turns away. Right, I mean, right. I don't. I think they would have uh, welcomed him in, but it's almost a semi-voluntary act. Well, so I, you had mentioned that Ford seems to go out of his way to show Ethan's apartness mm -hmm. and uh, his racism. Ethan's this complex character. I was going to ask to what end, but I'm not sure. Is that too... It could be as simple as, you know, the trope of the Old West, you know, the guy who has to ride off into the sunset at the end. I, I don't, I hadn't really thought about that too much. Um, I guess let me, let me flip that question and be a little bit more leading is it, it seems like some of the commentators on the Blu-ray suggest that there is a measure of redemption for Ethan because he doesn't kill Deborah. Well, of course, you know, this is the most famous thing about the movie and, and it's the great shot, you know, where he, you think he's going to kill her, but he picks her up and says, mm -hmm. let's go home or whatever. And I have a great problem with that as the climax of the movie, because there's no hint of anything leading up to that moment that, you know, he's not just going to kill her. Why suddenly this uh, complete turnaround of, of what he had been planning and, and what he'd been monomaniacally chasing down for however many years, five years. Mm -hmm. you know, I had a problem that there doesn't seem to be any hint or motivation of why this changed other than, you know, anybody can be redeemed suddenly and without deserving it. Well, I mean, if it is anyone could be redeemed, I mean, if it is a redemption uh, or if it's an actual change, it, I might argue that there was a small hint in... Or perhaps a hint in the earlier scene where Debbie comes to try to send them away mm -hmm. and Ethan pulls out the gun to shoot her and but he's been um, invented, right? Jeffrey get yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Jeffrey Hunter gets in the way, Mark gets in the way and says, Stand aside, Martin and you know, Mark says, No, I'm not gonna let you do that. Mm -hmm. it, I mean it seems evident to me through most of the movie that that Ethan is capable of overcoming Martin. I mean, maybe I believe that because sure, yeah. I want to believe that, but I, right. I think Ethan could have. Well, he treats him mostly with contempt. Yeah, he's gotten around him fairly easily. Like if if he wanted to get her at that, but that there was enough of um at least a a small inner huh. conflict that you know was holding them back. Now that scene isn't famously interrupted too. Right. I mean that it doesn't come to its conclusion. He might have and right. that might have given um, you know, additional time. But um but other than that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but other than that, and of course there's the uh there's what's almost a, a more disturbing scene for me in terms of gender politics and not just race politics, where before Ethan goes out, he talks to I forget if it's the parent or the aunt or something like that. And she says, you know, basically that, basically she says if it comes to that, he's more important than than she is. Yeah. And so there, there's kind of a bit of a, uh, I think it says, I'm looking at my notes here, if the girls are dead, 
don't let the boys throw their lives away in vengeance. Well, so that's interesting, too, <laughs> uh, because, you know, throwing your life away in vengeance can be throwing your life away trying to get vengeance, right. or uh, in the one sense, that's kind of a complex promise or uh, problem, because in one sense, Ethan doesn't let them get killed in vengeance. He protects them. Right. But... Martin almost throws away his life in vengeance. He, uh, the Vera Miles character pretty nearly leaves him and gets ready to move on. And he spends a, a significant portion so of his one, life. One letter in five years or something. Yeah. Like yeah. One letter, <laughs> one letter in, in five years. But there is something about that exchange that I found uh, almost troublesome. Of course, she says if the girls are dead, yeah. not, you know, well, that's what the other fiance does, right? The, the Jorgensen boy, when mm-hmm. he did, when finally Wayne tells him what happened to the other daughter, he rides, you know, into the face of the Indian camp and presumably hears shots and he's killed. Right, you know, so um, that it that they can't quite live with that. So, so okay, so what I'm hearing you say is that um, you have a problem. <laughs> you have I have a problem. a problem. Yeah, I mean, with, it's a great movie, but that is just like, what what leads it to that? And do we have any notion? That his any of his attitudes have changed at all, other than that maybe he had this moment of, of love for a family member. You know, certainly, there's no hint that his ideas about Indians are going to be changed in any way. I'm thinking. I, I'm uh, thinking. We, we we can do that. In- <laughs> it seems to me, uh, you know, it's become this iconic moment of this great film, and yet to me, it seems one of the greatest flaws of this iconic film. Well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where I want to go with that. You, <laughs> you, you've caught me unawares, but one of, one of the things that it makes me think of, just to draw it back to this whole question of religion and mm-hmm. faith and faith and spirituality and development, which is tied into, I think, lots of different kinds of development, emotional development and physical development. I think it is this human nature that it is sometimes paradoxically easier to make these great renunciations or these grand gestures. Yeah. Uh, or you could simply say, you know, uh, if, if you're going to go into the religious and Christian perspective, that anyone at any time can receive this moment of grace, whether they deserve it or not. Mm-hmm. And maybe we're just saying that he's had some sort of moment of grace, whether he even... Uh, can process it or appreciate it or know why he did it, uh, that's still what happened there. So, yeah, but I guess if we want to parse it in religious terms, then that makes me struggle with our our stereotypical notion of an idea of a moment of grace is that that's something that's not just for that moment or for that action. But But now he is a different But now he is a different man because right. he's been touched by grace, right. you know, there's certainly uh, no time for that to be in today. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, and I think it's actually hinted the opposite, which is to say that, I mean, the, the turning away at the right. door right. is suggesting that I'm not going to be domesticated. I can't actually use this as a stepping stone to be right. integrated into the future. I'm, I'm a person of, of the past. And 
Uh, I recognize that my way of life or my way of thinking is dying. So it's almost, um, you know, but it's it, instead of making a last stand, it's, it's, it's letting go. That dissatisfies me, but I mean, so he's I'm, turned away from God essentially. Well, offered the opportunity and, and realized that, you know, for himself, it's not going to work or that's what he believes. It's very, I, I agree with you. It's very clear that he makes the decision not to be part of the home. And there, there's that combination of being closed out and turning away at the end. But what does it mean? <laughs> I, well, I, I'm reluctant. I to think make it's realistic it, for that. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm reluctant to make it a turning away from God, maybe because I just don't want to. I, I, it seems <laughs> to me you have that very romantic, very American notion of individualism where I keep wanting to go back to institutions versus personal religion. Right. That that Ethan eschews any of the rituals or participations. I won't take the oath. I won't, you know. Personally, I um, think it's much more secular, and it is about community and individualism. Right. He and, cannot live in community. And, and so, right. And, and so I think that, I, I mean, I hate this expression because I think it's often understood, but to try to take it towards today, you have that notion of, you know, that cliche of people saying, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, you know, because religion for them has come to mean that religion has been co-opted by the institutional organizations or by the community. And I mean, I confess that, that I struggle with that, that there are, um, you know, in a society or a culture in which, the most public manifestations or faces of my religion are communities of vocal believers who manifest their religions in ways that I don't really want to be a part of right. and, you know, expressing meanings of the religions that I, I don't really believe or buy into. There is that, that feeling of, okay, I don't, I share something. I think in the movie, it's it's blood. I share, right. you know, family. Kinship, you know. He, he he. That's one of the things he clearly values is uh, the family is important. What can we say? Believes in too. You know, I mean, that he believes in family. Or I don't know if it's so much. I wouldn't. I don't know if I would use that phrase. Believes yeah. in family. It's just. Uh, I think it's another. Uh, it's a structure that he can honor, mm-hmm. and he can just say blood is important. Mm-hmm. But uh, and again, while while serving the duties of blood, he still never becomes really part of that family. He's not really in the family, but he still values this social stricture that says, you know, you've got to take care of the family. Yeah, or, or he's not a family man. I, I mean, I, I go back to I can only take one oath at a time. I I think he values a kind of integrity or right. something like that and that he's been, you know, drilled that the family is the most important thing. And so, I, I mean, make the comparison to The Godfather, another comparison that might be worth thinking about or exploring is that, that just popped into my head is HAL 9000 in 2001, where it's that classic, I've got two sets of marching orders. Right. And when, you know, two very strongly held sets of beliefs come in conflict with each other, 
which is going to win and what sort of violence does that do to myself as a unified, coherent person. Right. person. So I think on the one hand, he's got a very strongly held faith in um, or valuation of family and, and the kinship bond. And that's something that uh, he gets a sense of self-worth in from having his integrity of following through on that. Uh, but he also has these very strong notions of, of hatred and anger, defeating right. the, the enemy of not believing in. Right. in so surrender. in his mind, that becomes, you know, to, to, to honor this business with family and then, but yeah, I hate these people. So in his mind, that gets twisted into, well, she's got to die because, you know, she's been taken out of the family and, you know. Well, and the central conflict is I can't do both. Right. I mean, I can't. Um, in a sense, not killing her is a form of surrender. It's a surrender of my plans. It's a surrender of my intention. Right. It's in a certain sense saying to Scar, you won. Um, and, uh, so I mean, I, I think that the, that at least to me makes it so that there's a kind of nobility in his, in his final action because I think so it's a kind of sacrifice he still really wants yeah. to he, he does want to kill her right. um, but I think that it's like at that point it, it, it's a parallel to the Native American shooting the Native American in the eyes in terms of according to what am I going to go by according to what I believe right. and what I want or am I going to go by you know what they believe, you know, the family. I mean, in in some ways. So if if we look at it that way, then really the ending is a kind of a lessening of him in a way because he's made this sacrifice. Or is it honorable that he's given up this drive that he has for the rest of the society, the family? Or has he essentially, as you say, surrendered and lost something of his own, albeit twisted? Uh, uh, personal code. Yeah, I, maybe I project too much I I into that, but I mean, I think the common consensus would be that he has at least temporarily found some sort of redemption. But if we follow along these, you know, the, the, your notion of the struggling codes, then naturally, to follow that out logically. There's been some kind of lessening of him at the end. Yeah, I mean, assuming that Ethan is a strictly logical and coherent well, individual, because I, I, I mean, in, in some senses, I, I, as I've been thinking about, you know, you, your sort of complaint or challenge that the sparing of Deborah comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give two more movie analogies or right. whatever that I think. One is obviously from Hamlet. It's a famous one from Hamlet about um, the lady does protest too much, me thinks. Right. You know, that on some level, Ethan's protestations that I don't believe any of this, that I don't, you know, I'm only good for one oath, um, that I'm not part of a community, that I don't want to be part of a community, that that's just what you preach, it's right. not what I believe. When it's put to the final test. So that's a shell, a hardness that he's adopted. That, yeah, that's like a mask that he right. puts on for, you know, so that's one and possibility. And it's sloughed off a little bit at the end. Um, the, the other movie analogy that I think of, it's one of my favorite lines in, um, it's an exchange between Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway in Three Days of the Condor, where he's looking at photographs that she's taken. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and she says, sometimes I take a picture, and it's not me, only I took it, so it must be me. And I think that in some ways, she's talking about the same thing in there, which is there's this public persona or mask that we put on for the world, and sometimes even for ourselves, to try to really persuade ourselves that we believe the things we want to believe or we don't believe the things that we don't want to believe. And that on, you know, on some level, there's just the suggestion or some people want to make the suggestion that that one moment of sparing Deborah is the real Ethan uh, and everything uh, else uh, is the, you know, I mean, it's, part of what makes me think about that. I mean, cause I was thinking about this, one of the questions I had in my notes was this whole thing about is it, is he important that he's in the Confederacy? Mm-hmm. And one of the places where we see the army, I mean, that's a different kind of community, right? You right. know, there's, it's not just the spiritual community, but the military community. The cavalry comes in, um, and they don't, they're not rescued by the cavalry. They see the aftermath of the cavalry. They see the massacre that they've done, including, the slaughtering of Martin's squab wife that's been sold into her and saying, oh, they didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think that there's, I don't know if Ethan was ever really totally you know, bought into the military, and that's the Confederate. Right. Army, He's the, the Union Army as opposed over. to the, 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 Confe- you know, the, the Confederate Army. But there is this sort of sense of... um I, I do think it makes him question some of the things or some of the assumptions that he believes. And if, it, if nothing else, questioning some of the binaries of, right. you know, there's the white man and then there's the Indian. Well, the white man's not acting that much different right. than the Indian. And so, you know, I think it helps blur his distinction between us and them because there is no longer, it, it's not so much that I can post-cultural, multicultural way can, now associate with them or the alien. It's I feel increasingly alienated from us. I don't, you know, the us. I don't right. really think of as I don't really believe in. But uh, a lot of people who've grown up in religious cultures or any culture, the hardest thing in the world is to kind of wean yourself away from that. It and so you tend to overcompensate and run away right. from that. And then at times, but but there's a part of you that. I would argue there's a part of someone who's been brought up in a community or a tradition, whether it's a military or a religious one, that never totally gives it up. You yeah. know, I, I mean, there's some people that just try to spend their whole lives trying to say, I don't really believe it. And then they protest too much. Right. I was talking to a friend, you know, the other day who had just been totally ostracized by church and the Christian community. But I was talking about going to Sunday school and, and he, he kind of sighed. He said, you know, I miss it. And I just wonder on some level if there's something that that Ethan has, there's some tenuous thread or tie of Ethan to the community or whatnot that, that he knows that if he kills her, I'm never going to find, you know, I'm never, that string is never going to lead me back there, but I can't cut it forever. Right. Well, does that make any sense, or am I just asking? It makes sense. I think, though, if it's if that is true, if if we if we want to say, okay, that's what's happening, then I would argue that that would have to be a totally subconscious 
part of Ethan because I don't think the character as we've seen him for two hours uh, is that thoughtful of, mm-hmm. a, of a person. That would have to be totally uh, under his own radar if he was if there was that impulse there. Mm-hmm. All right, so yeah, I'll, I'll buy that, and it, it may be the kind of thing that that uh, we've looked at various. I, I mean, it may not necessarily be a question that we can't answer. No, so, I don't think so we'll say, hey, li- have enough- hey, listeners, come in, you know, <laughs> leave a note, g- give us your thoughts if we if, uh, help us out there. Just to summarize some of the the suggestions that that we've looked at for reading the end. Mm-hmm. You suggested that it may just be a flaw of the movie, that it's a great movie, right. but a braver or perhaps a more honest or realistic movie would say, in those sorts of situations, most people don't turn back at the 11th hour. They actually, you know... I think you can still have that ending, but what I really would have wanted was at least a couple or two hints. Lay the groundwork. Lay the groundwork yeah, lay that, the ground so that... So that maybe that's my weakness as a as a viewer that I want to be led by the nose to this conclusion, right? Or or n- not as a weakness as a viewer. I mean, maybe it's one of those things from a reader response point of view, from a technical feature mm-hmm. about the difference between a first viewing and a subsequent viewing. Because I get the feeling like so much of that ending is supposed to be based on surprise, yeah, and. Maybe The Searchers is one of those movies like, you know, The Usual Suspects or Witness for the Prosecution oh, well, you know it's that has a twist, that. you know, yeah, yeah. where so much of the power is the twist ending. And once that twist ending has been, you can never totally recapture right. the, the shock or the surprise. Right. Uh, now, I think The Sixth Sense is a more problematic example because in the best examples of the twist ending, the twist ending has not entirely been hidden from you, right? You know, we'll talk about mystery genres as sort of saying, I'll see this in television, the mystery genre that very cleverly hides it from you, but you had everything the detective needed to figure it out. And when the the detective says, here's what happened, you're like, oh, yes, of course. Uh, And then there's the lazier mystery genre that sort of says, there's no way I could have known that, or he knows that until the person just comes, you know. Well, I don't want to get us off topic, but if we're talking about Sixth Sense still, then I knew about halfway through the the twist. There's a moment where they don't touch hands in the restaurant, and it's like, oh, oh, okay, he's yeah. not really there, yeah. right? But, but, so, that's a but I mean, but I think, yeah, in terms of the, there's my, I guess what I'm saying is that there's variations on the twist ending, yeah. Um, but I'm wondering if the searchers was so much is invested in trying to make that a shock or a surprise because of the, the, you know, then it has a greater emotional payoff. If you really think that he's going to kill her and then he does it, there's this huge emotional payoff where, um, and then, but it's, it's hard to have that surprise each time that you, I I never thought of that. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense. uh, Review it. So, I mean, there's possibility that there's a structural thing. There's possibility that it's, you know, an inconsistency or, you know, weakness in, in the script, we had talked about its possibility that it's a moment of grace. Sometimes people have transformation or that there's some sort of psychological explanation going on. Readers, if you've got other explanations, come in Please. And, and, and help us out. All right. Any, any other comments that, that you want to, wanted to make? 
No, not that I can think of. We've, we've gone through most of it. Uh, you know, if I'm still going to argue that that's a, a flawed moment, I, I have to say it's still a great movie. Uh, <laughs> a great yeah. movies can have uh, big flaws. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, oh, to be... Right. And as we brought up earlier, oh, to be, oh, to only have one flaw. Yeah. Your, you and know, visually, your, your, it's it's, uh, it's beautiful. Well, some of the comic relief stuff is is kind of tired. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, and the stuff with the, the he accidentally buys the woman instead of the blanket. You know? Right. A lot of that is pretty uh, pretty cornball stuff by today's standard. But yeah, again, I, I still appreciate the movie very much. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Peter, for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you've got comments or about this podcast or suggestions for other films you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a note at www.filmgeekradio.com backslash the thin place. Uh, you can also follow uh, me, Ken, at the number one morefilmblog.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at backslash Ken Morefield. Peter is on Twitter and I believe Witstream. Twitter and Witstream. And, and what's your handle there? Uh, on Twitter, I'm, I'm PJ Waldron. Okay, Twitter, twitter.com backslash PJ Waldron. Uh, we didn't give him a comedy, right? So, uh, <laughs> we had to talk serious. You can't, can't really do too much Witstream material with the searches, but <laughs> hopefully we can have uh, Peter back sometime when we do a comedy because uh, – <laughs> Uh, that's an underappreciated genre that we need to talk more about. But um, thank you, Peter, and thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!